So I think that one of the most helpful contributions to biblical scholarship that I've come across in the last year is by Alexander Shia. And it's the thought that the four Gospels use a particular landscape to present the good news. For Matthew, this is going to sound familiar to you because we've been in Matthew for many weeks. For Matthew, the landscape is the mountain. And for Mark, the landscape is the desert or the sea. Uh, For John, the landscape is the garden. And for Luke, for Luke, the landscape is the road. In Luke, every important event takes place on the road. And for nine chapters, nine of the 24 chapters in this gospel, Jesus is on a specific journey to Jerusalem. Our scripture passage today begins in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning with verse 51. Would you read it with me? You can stand if you want to. (laughs) Let's read it together. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Then they went on to another village. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. So this mat on the ground It's a labyrinth. It's an image of a labyrinth. A labyrinth might look like a maze, but a labyrinth is not a maze because there are no dead ends in a labyrinth. There should be no tricks in a labyrinth, and there are no intersecting paths. There's just one path in to the middle of the labyrinth, and there's one path. It's the same path that goes back out. If you walk a labyrinth without preaching, you will not engage your thinking mind, but instead you engage your intuitive, your pattern-seeking, your symbolic mind. So you put, you suspend your thinking mind when you are praying a labyrinth. To me, it's kind of like um, washing dishes or digging in the dirt. Sometimes I get some of my best insights when my thinking mind is disengaged. In recent years, the labyrinth has been used by Christians as a prayer tool. But our generation of Christians, we're not the first Christians to pray the labyrinth. The earliest Christian Christian version of a labyrinth is probably from the 4th century. Uh, found, it was found in a basilica in Algeria. Uh, the Chartres, cathedral in France, and I think we have an image of this, that was built in the 12th and 13th centuries, has a labyrinth, and it is built in stone into the nave of that cathedral. But okay, so a labyrinth is kind of like an Easter egg, or a Christmas tree, or a cross, or the Passover meal. These are all things that Christians confiscated. We didn't invent them. We just took them on and put them to use. Um, The labyrinth is an ancient wisdom tool. So, of course, Christians aren't the only ones to ever have used the labyrinth. 
The labyrinth is probably 4,000 years old. It's been imprinted on coins. It's been traced on uh, to pottery and uh, probably came from the spiral fix the spiral image that's often found in nature. I think we have an image of several spirals found in nature too. So God's good creation, the spiral found in nature. It is good. This mat on the floor is not Jesus. We will not worship this mat on the floor, but it is a way to get to the truth that Jesus is speaking into your life right now. It's a way that I have used to hear God's truth in my life. It marks a safe and winding path. So I think that this would also be a way to get to truth that Luke would be familiar with, that Luke would be okay with. You know, there's something really strange about the path that Jesus takes from Galilee to Jerusalem in Luke's gospel. He doesn't go straight to Jerusalem from Galilee. Geographically, his journey makes no sense. If you could imagine a first century map, it has Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south. Let me tell you about Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. He starts in Galilee in chapter 9. He passes through Samaria in 10. Then he's in Bethany, close to Jerusalem. Then in 13, he goes back to Galilee. (laughs) He's close to Samaria in 17. Then he's in Jericho, and then he's in Jerusalem. It is a strange, circuitous route. But I bet if you checked the driving path of my little Prius between my house and H-E-B some days, there are days when it looks like that. (laughs) I go from my house to H-E-B to somewhere else to back to my house to back to H-E-B. But that doesn't happen on the days I plan well. And the text tells us that Jesus' face is set toward Jerusalem. Did you pick that up? Twice in the passage. Another way to translate that phrase is to say, Jesus deliberately set his face to go. Or he hardened his face to go. His face was like stone. There are many days when I do that. When I set my mind on a particular goal. Over spring break... We are driving to New Mexico to ski, and I think it's going to be about an 11 or 12-hour drive. And I don't expect that as a family of five in one car that we're going to go the long way to New Mexico. I don't expect that we're going to stop often or that we're going to drive to El Paso and then come back to San Antonio and then turn back around and head toward New Mexico again. (laughs) Instead, I think that we'll probably have that Waze app engaged so that we will avoid any traffic and that we will get to New Mexico as quickly as possible, a direct, straight route, closest distance between two points, right, a straight line. When I read this passage in Luke, I expect no pausing, no relaxing, no interruptions for the next nine chapters. I expect that every single step that Jesus takes is going to be toward Jerusalem. But that's not the case. That's not the case at all. Jesus visits with friends. Jesus is a guest in the homes of other people. 
And Jesus does much of his teaching at the dinner table. Where is this determination that I so often practiced and I have come to expect in my Jesus? You know, I really like my, I'm not going to put up with your stupidity, Jesus. That's one of my favorite versions of Jesus. I think James and John like that version too. When the Samaritans refuse to receive Jesus, they say, well, should we command fire to come down from heaven to consume them? That's what Elijah did. That's what Elijah did in the first chapter of 2 Kings. Now, granted, Elijah had a valid issue with the king of Israel. The king of Israel was consulting with Baal. So when the king sends a captain with 50 men to Elijah, there's no dialogue. There's no dialogue at all. Instead, it's just, may fire come down from heaven and consume you. And this happens twice. Then the third captain, who shows up with 50 men, he begs Elijah for his wife, for his life. His wife also, I'm sure. His wife's life also. And the angel says to Elijah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go down there from the top of your hill and meet with them. We usually read this passage as a sign of Elijah's power. But what if, what if instead we see in this story a misuse of power? My friend uh, Ryan Jacobson pointed out to me this week that it's in the very next chapter of Elijah's story. He's done. He's taken up to heaven. It's like a forced early retirement for a prophet. (laughs) In the first part of chapter 9 of Luke, Jesus says to his disciples, and James and John would have been included there, when you go to a town, if no hospitality is offered, shake the dust off your feet and move on. Fred Craddock wrote, isn't it fascinating how the mind can retain scriptures that seem to bless our worst behavior? How about we call down fire from heaven to consume them? But we can't seem to retain recent words of love and forgiveness and mercy. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah, sometimes referred to as a picture of the suffering servant. This is Isaiah 50. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. The Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. To hear Isaiah reflected in this journey to Jerusalem, to see Isaiah reflected in Jesus' face, set like a stone, like flint, tells me two things about the journey that Jesus begins toward Jerusalem. The first thing it tells me is that the Lord is near. Jesus is telling his disciples that he doesn't travel alone, that he travels with the Father. The Lord helps me, Isaiah writes. He who vindicates me is near. 
this pilgrimage that Jesus begins toward Jerusalem, it's not a solo mission, but it's inspired by and it's provided by the Lord God. The second thing that this tells me to hear Isaiah reflected in Jesus' words is that this journey is primarily about sacrifice. It's about Jesus' own sacrifice. His own self-giving will reveal the greatest truth. I think that in Luke's gospel, one of the earliest places we see this sacrifice His self-giving revealed is in the passage that we read today, quite possibly one of the clearest ways that we can express sacrificial love is in how we meet rejection, what we do when we are rejected. Do we meet rejection with rejection or do we choose a different way? In all likelihood, the Samaritan village refuses Jesus because he has set the destination of his, of his journey to Jerusalem. They disagree with the place. Samaritans and Jews, they would have disagreed about many things. But one of the most important things that they disagreed on was the site of the Holy of Holies. Where is the holy place? Samaritans say it's at Mount Gerizim. But the Jews say Mount Zion in Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies. So Samaritans won't hear of a Messiah's place being Jerusalem or any other holy person's journey toward Jerusalem. They refuse to offer hospitality to someone who is headed toward Jerusalem in a holy pilgrimage. But Jesus doesn't meet their rejection with rejection. He corrects the sons of thunder. We're not going to rain fire down on them, he says. And in the very next chapter, Jesus will tell an important parable in Luke chapter 10. It's only found in Luke's gospel. It's one that we refer to as the good Samaritan. Exactly. And in the opening chapter of Acts, the resurrected Christ calls his disciples to be his witnesses And he tells them exactly where to go to be his witnesses. He says this, go to Jerusalem, go to Judea, and go to Samaria. You can reject me, but I won't let that be my path also. My path will come back around. My path will come back around to include you. That's the Messiah's way. I find this difficult to practice. (laughs) It is the most arduous and complex of spiritual disciplines, meeting rejection with acceptance, blessing those who curse you. When I experience rejection, my usual response is to pick up my toys and go home. I don't want to make myself available for more rejection. My spiritual director has asked me, to start blessing those people and those places where I find rejection. This has been an interesting practice for me because I have operated for many years with the misunderstanding that blessings were only for those things or for those people that I designated as good. That's not the case. You know, it's kind of like a superpower that we have as followers of Jesus We can bless any darn thing we come across. (laughs) 
Barbara Brown Taylor writes that the key to blessing things is to know that the thing has already beat you to the blessing and to receive that blessing that the thing or the person has for you. She says, ease up on holding that line between what is good and what is bad for you. You may not be smart enough to always tell the difference. A broken bone, a winning lottery ticket, the two might be more alike than I know. Can I open up to the blessing of rejection? Poet John O'Donohue writes about the experience of betrayal. He wrote this, I can see how that hurt has schooled my heart in a compassion I would otherwise have never learned. I can see how your hurt has schooled my heart in a compassion I would otherwise have never learned. Some lessons, I believe, some lessons of faith, we just have to learn by walking them out. And we walk them out as we follow Rabbi Jesus' way. You can't receive this wisdom, this wisdom of blessing those who curse you, blessing those who persecute you, and know how to do it. You can't, you can't just hear those words and know exactly how to do it. You have to experience it. You have to walk it out. And much of what we have to learn in our journey to be like Christ, we have to walk out. Augustine of Hippo who was one of the early church fathers, wrote this, Salvatore ambulando. It is solved by walking. Well, what exactly is it, you're asking? What is it that is solved by walking? I suspect that you're going to have to do your own walking to figure it out. Will you pray with me? Eternal God, We thank you and we bless you because you are a God of the journey and you call each of us to a specific journey that leads us closer to the truth that you have for us, to the truth of resurrection in our own lives. We remember that our Messiah, your son, our Lord and Savior, called his disciples to journey with him and on the night before he gave himself up for us, He took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood. It is poured out a new covenant for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Almighty God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon this bread and this cup. Make them be the body and blood of Christ for us, that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by your blood. By your Spirit, make us one with you, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until your Son comes in his final victory and we feast at your heavenly banquet. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning we're going to take communion, and you're going to receive communion here at the sides of the altar. So I'm going to...
throw a plan out there and then you can take communion and receive communion uh, as you feel led. But let's start with these sections that are closest to me with the front rows and, and they will come and receive communion and then return back to their seats or you can walk the labyrinth. Now remember the deal with the labyrinth is you have to have on socks or those shoe covers. Um, but you can walk the labyrinth while communion is being taken. You can walk it during our final song this morning, and you can stay after to walk the labyrinth as well. Um, it is open to you, and it doesn't have to be one at a time. Several people can be on this labyrinth at the same time. You just have to be aware of each other. Don't run into each other as you're walking in or walking out. But those who are serving communion, come forward at this time. The labyrinth is a way that we walk out our journey and receive the grace God has for us. And communion is a way that we receive the grace God has for us. So come and take a part of that. The grace is for you.